Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and welcome to the series we're doing on points of view, how we show up and be in the world based on our experiences and how we perceive ourselves and the world. Today, we have Christina Ryan, and she is the CEO and founder of the Disability Leadership Institute, and quite a remarkable woman, I have to say. She was in the audience of a panel we were listening to on diversity and inclusion, and she had some remarkable comments to make during that whole event. I thought, I must get to know this woman better. And she came along to one of my CEO breakfasts and was a speaker for us about diversity and inclusion. So I'm excited to have her on the podcast. So that's a little bit of a background. However, let me tell you a little bit more of the exciting things she's done. She has pioneered the use of mainstream forms by women with disabilities at the United Nations and now mentors and teaches effective use of the UN for rights activists globally while working as a leadership coach for people with disabilities. That's very busy. And one of the other exciting parts is that Christina has established the Disability Leadership Institute in 2016 as a professional hub for leaders with disabilities to build and support our disability leaders. It is the first organization of its kind in the world and has launched, I think, was it your first round of leadership programs just recently, or is that multiple rounds that you've had just recently? We've just graduated our first program. Oh, it's bloody exciting. And I can't wait to hear more about this particular program. So please welcome Christina. Yay! The so much so. It's great to be here. Really looking forward to it. So the first question I have is around leadership and working in the UN space internationally, setting up an organization, first of its kind in the world. How do you get to that space? Like what was your first leadership experience and how did that shape your career? I think I'm just kind of constructed to be one of those people that does stuff. <laughs> so um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is I've come from a my entire family, you know, multi-generations of people who have been social change activists and got out there and done things. So in some ways, it's the family trade. Um, and what that's meant is I just have a, a particular approach to the world. If something needs doing, then I'll get out there and do it. Yeah. That's the short list. <laughs> There's a bigger, longer list of things, which I generally don't um, send to people unless I'm trying to get a, a high-paid job out of them because it's a bit intimidating. And I find it <laughs> shocking to read myself, yeah. <laughs> it's just what I do. I, I do what needs doing and I do it, um, I've done it most of my life. Yeah. I love that. I love that as a definition of leadership, do what needs doing. <laughs> it's very pragmatic and action-oriented. Well, in that context, too, I think the, the clarifier there is it's also not about you. I think that's a really big thing. Um, I was having a conversation with a, a friend, you know, a little while back, and he said something that really took me by surprise, that leadership is a competition. What? And I thought, what? I said, same thing, too. <laughs> what? And, and I said, no, it's not. I said, no, it is not. It's exactly not a competition. It's actually about collaboration and pulling people together and making things happen, taking responsibility for action, but it's certainly not about competing with people. So in that context, I think, you know, sometimes we mistake the people who end up in positions of prominence as being leaders. And of course, they're not necessarily, they're often more concerned with themselves and their own prominence or their own position than they are about affecting the particular change or fixing the particular problem that, you know, would be far more useful. I'm still stumped on that, on that comment that leadership is a competition. Was it, 
Was it, do you think, because he was looking at it's a competition to get into positions of leadership? Is that what he, where that was coming from? I suspect so, actually. And I, and I did process, you know, it took me a while, some weeks to work through the, the whole thing. But I, I suspect that's exactly where he was coming from. And particularly, um, you know, white men of a certain age, which he is, uh, I, I suspect that's exactly where many people end up is this space of I can't do things unless I come first or if I win the position, or if I am appointed, or if I... So there's always that look out for yourself thing going on, which in leadership context, now particularly in leadership development, um, is really anathema. It's not how we think. We're not thinking in terms of what's in it for me. Well, not as your primary concern anyway. You know, and certainly I think it's when people think if it is a competition, they're mistaking authority for leadership. That's right. And also um, that thing about what is success, you know, that thing about success is being paid more or about having a more important position or a more high profile position. All of those things going together are somehow success when, of course, what we also know from so much writing and discovery these days is that there's an awful lot of people in those spaces who aren't very happy and their lives aren't great. And so how is that success anyway? So I think in some ways that that constant drive, that constant competitive drive, that sense of having to be at the front better than others in whatever way that better than is expressed, whether that's money or position or renown, is somehow the outcome, the thing to be driving for when we have so much evidence suggesting that that's really the last thing you want to be doing if you want a great life that's going to bring you riches and enjoyment. I think that's a beautiful comment. And I was just interviewing another author, James Sirwillow, who talked a little bit about that. And um, he's got this great book called Men of Modern Leadership, The Seven Values. I can't remember the title, <laughs> the rest of the subtitle. And I asked him, like, those, there's seven values that he's researched that we need for contemporary leadership. I said, if there's a kingpin one in there, which one do you think trumps all the rest that you need primarily? And he said purpose. And I think that feeds into your comments about success is that with a strong sense of purpose, which is outside of self in contribution to others, then that will steer our ship in a better way than being self-focused, which is the competitive piece in there. I think so. And it's interesting because I think that's where I have been very lucky indeed. I've been quite privileged um, with my background because coming from such a strong social change family, you know, purpose is almost the thing that we learned uh, from, from the beginning you know, right from the, before you can remember, um, purpose was the thing. And so there's always been a sense of the bigger world out there and what you're doing for it and how you're interacting with it that, um, that I've never had to learn. And it took me by surprise some years ago to start seeing a lot of the, you know, it's fashionable now to write books about purpose. And it really took me by surprise because I thought, why is this such a hard thing for people to get? (laughs) <laughs> but of course, they haven't got the benefit of, you know, generations of guidance that I had had. So I guess I need to be a little bit um, more generous there. Mm. So, okay, I'm, I'm curious about this generations of social change activists, I'm guessing. Like, can you give us an example of some of your heritage in that, in that area? Oh, there's plenty out there. If people want to Google me, they'll find it. Um, so I guess my grandmother, for example, uh, is credited with being one of the prime movers behind equal pay for Australian women. Um, my aunt wow. is, uh, One of my aunts um, is currently 
doing uh, this fantastic massacre map of Indigenous massacre sites around Australia. Wow. Another aunt developed the first gender studies program at a university in Australia, which then became something that many universities started running through many decades. So, you know, that's just the sort of people we are. And, and yeah, <laughs> that's just for starters, I guess. So I won't go on about it. I find that a bit awkward and embarrassing. But, yeah, that's the family that I've had. It's, it's a family of very proactive women, mainly, um, although, you know, my father was a bloke, obviously. <laughs> and, <laughs> And if we go back multiple generations, even um, even the fact that we ended up in Australia in the first place is down to the activism of my ancestors in places like Europe and Ireland, um, which resulted in them needing to be in Australia to get away from difficult situations where mm. they arose from. So it is right back multi, multi-generations. We've got about six generations of very strong trade unionists. So, you know, that aside is one thing that everybody is expected to simply be a part of a trade union in my family, and that's how it is, yeah. That's okay. Trade unions are good. And so we come to your activism and in the disability space and the creation of the Disability Leadership Institute. So let's talk about that. Why the Institute and what purpose does it serve in advancing the cause for diversity and inclusion? Quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, mindful that we don't have all day. Um, <laughs> so, uh, look, I've, I've spent 25 years working in violence uh, against disabled women primarily, but uh, disabled people and uh, was very much one of the people pushing for a Royal Commission uh, for the last decade into the violence and abuse against disabled people. And the work I did at the United Nations was around women with disabilities and the inequality that we experience. And it hit me one morning, 3am, literally on a Sunday, it was 3am, uh, that part of the ongoing nature of, of these battles was that they are symptoms of inequality. And so we can be the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. We can be fighting violence all that time. We can be fighting, you know, general inequality. We can be fighting the fact that, you know, more disabled men than women get services, more disabled men than women get access to education and employment programs, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and disabled people generally have less access to employment. Only about half of us actually have jobs with money. So all of those are symptoms of the inequality and, and there's so much out there that's the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff trying to scrape people up and pretend mm. that we're doing something. And the reality is we're not changing anything. It just keeps happening. And my 3am moment was realising that what we need is people in leadership positions. I've got a bit of a conference speaking trick where I ask you, you know, name me five leaders with disabilities that are alive and working today because people always want to include a couple of our dead colleagues. And... Uh, very few people can get to five, and it's usually other disabled people. We just aren't there. Um, mm. At the moment, in all of the parliaments of Australia, we have four openly disabled people across all of those different parliaments. In the media, we just don't see disabled people in the media as commentators, as people who have a say, as respected experts across a range of areas, you know, talking about the Barrier Reef or talking about you know, massacre maps or whatever, they're just not there. That is shifting a little bit now. Some networks are more mindful of that. In academia, in, you know, all walks of life, you know, we just don't have that presence of disability leadership. And that means a couple of things. It means that we're not respected as leaders in the community who have a contribution to make. 
But what we also know is a specific outcome of inequality is greater levels of being subjected to violence. And, you know, there's an, a wealth of um, research now that's gone into understanding this about gender-based violence, that it is an outcome of inequality. And countries that have much greater gender equality indices have less gender-based violence. So I put those two together. We don't have any specific research in that area. And I, I put those two together and thought, that's what we need. We actually need to fix the disability leadership dilemma, the fact that we don't have it, the fact that it isn't a thing. And uh, there was the birth of the Institute. Um, and, you know, from my background, I mean, I've, I've run organisations, I've done things, you know, I've been to the UN, I've represented my community across a range of areas over most of my life, you know, doing things. And I thought, I've, I've got the skills, I've got the expertise, um, I can pull something like this together. And because not, not much frightens me or gets in my way, I just got on with it and did it. And within literally two months, we had it up and running. So that was exciting. Um, it's a real lesson in the fact that you don't need to agonise over starting something up. If you really want to do something, just bloody well do it, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> if you sit back and talk about it too much or get frightened or, or worry about the what is and, and get anxious, well, you'll never get anywhere. So getting out there and just doing it is how, how you change the world. And now we've just had our third birthday. And so that's pretty exciting. It's amazing. It's a, a huge credit to you, the initiative, the effort that goes into producing something like that and the vision for creating a space to give people the conviction and courage to stand up and see themselves as leaders. And I think you need to do that before you convince other people to give you a go, I'm guessing, is part of the genesis of this particular program. I'm curious about on the, looking across at, you know, why are people with disabilities perceived as not leadership material in your opinion? I think it's several centuries of cultural assumption, fundamentally. I mean, we're, we're still getting out of institutions. Yeah. Institutions still exist. They're right here in this country right now. Um, and it's that sense that disabled people are pathetic, that we are just a little bit weaker, that we're not up for it. These are all statements that are regularly made in my presence. <laughs> so it's still the dominant thinking about disabled people. And in fact, you alluded to that panel conversation uh, where we met Zoe. And I asked a question at that panel conversation. And, and one of the panel members who I've since become very friendly with, I might point out, answered me in a way that I found shocking is to the extent that they can. And I thought, that's really important for me to be reminded that that's where the majority of people are still sitting around the ability of disabled people to be leaders. What was yeah. the context of your question so that she answered in that way? Like, I, I can't quite remember what the question was I asked. <laughs> I, it was obviously around disability leadership and, and the fact that we hadn't covered it particularly. Oh, oh, maybe it was like, how do you encourage your disability leaders? And yeah, she said, and to the extent that they can do the job. Something well, actually, to that effect. It was, a he, it was a he that responded. Oh, it was a he. Um, okay. So I'm not going to get into naming, but um, but you know, to the extent that they can, and the implication there is, oh, we'll be nice about them getting to a certain level and recognise that that's about as far as they're going to get. That's sort of where it's at, and I just think, look, you know, and I'm I'm not I'm observing that. I'm not saying it in a critical way, but that's where we're still sitting. There's and and we get this even when we talk leadership development in the disability space. Most programs are still very entry level. There's an assumption that people are starting. There's mm. no recognition that there are existing people in the workforce, some of them operating at fairly senior levels, who are disabled people, and yet they are not recognised as leaders. 
they're not the ones that are referred to. They're not the ones who are targeted for executive appointment. They're bypassed. And it's a really interesting thing. And I think a lot of it does come down to cultural assumption and just we, we just haven't moved yet further down the path of, of accepting um, that disabled people are pretty much like everyone else when it comes to being leadership material, doing the inspirational leadership thing, being responsible for people, for money, being able to make tough decisions. You know, some of those things that a lot of people still balk at, still mm. really struggle to think that someone like me might be able to do. I think it's actually embedded in the in the language, you know, disability. Anything with a dis means a lack of disadvantage, disunity. And I think that, that that's probably because I've heard people talk about disability, like let's change it to different ability. And what's your thought? Is that just Yeah, that that doesn't travel very well, that thinking, because <laughs> fundamentally disability is an identity. Uh-huh. People identify as disabled people and uh you know, there's always a bit of suspicion around that, but you think about it. Indigenous people identify as Indigenous. LGBTIQ people identify as LGBTIQ, etc. So, you know, I identify as a disabled woman. That's where I come in. And uh, there's a, a funny space where if we start using euphemisms to cover up language that does still make a lot of people uncomfortable, yep. we make it invisible. Okay. And we're, we're already invisible because we're not there. You know, we're not in these rooms. And so people who are already uncomfortable about disabled people make themselves comfortable by using euphemisms and fundamentally um, exacerbate the fact that we're already invisible. So there's a really big push to say, look, just say the word. It is actually who we are. It would be like suggesting that some people find the word women difficult. And there was a time when men found it very difficult to talk about women other than yeah. disparagingly. Um, or change the spelling. Of women, you know, yeah. You know, so we're in the, pretty much the same space when it comes to disability. You know, we are people and we're here and our disabilities is who we are. It is who we are. It's not a, a sort of an add-on. It's actually who we are. So, yeah, embrace it. It's fine. Go right ahead. Use the word. It's uh, cool. <laughs> it's cool. And it, it, there is a big cringe factor. There's a, a, a lot of awkwardness around disability. And, you know, that's understandable. We're still not in places. I'm often the only person in the room when I'm at forums or roundtables. And it's a thing. People don't know where to go. They don't know where to look. They become very uncomfortable. And uh, it's part of breaking those barriers and getting into those spaces is recognising that you cause discomfort in people. The other side of that coin is it's not actually my responsibility to deal with it. You know, if it's your discomfort, then you deal with it, um, but don't think I'm unaware of it because I certainly am. Mm. Um, and, you know, we are still in that sort of delicate space. And, you know, growing up in such a strong feminist family, I'm very mindful, you know, 30 years ago, it was still very unusual for many women to be in many workplaces. There were extremely male workplaces and non-traditional fields. The women of those times experienced many of the same difficulties that disabled people are experiencing now around being the only one about people being a bit awkward about how do I speak suddenly you know because I can't use the language I've been using all this time if you're right in front of me so we're just you know a different group of people a few decades down the track pretty much dealing with the same stuff really yeah the in your face stuff I've only had in my experience a taste of that when I had um, cancer 
And it's, it's similar in the effect. You know, you tell people you're going through cancer and all of a sudden people react in all sorts of different ways. Uh, I have family members who could not talk to me. Yeah. Just, and it was nothing to do with me. I'm still the same human. I'm just dealing with this process. And she couldn't talk to me. She would just, because it, whatever, it's fun stuff on, off in her brain. And other people flocked to my doorstep. So it was like, I'm making an assumption this is a parallel experience. You show up as who you are and people have this flurry well, of that's it. effects. That's it. And it, it's particularly challenging. What happens is someone like me and, you know, for the listeners, I mean, you've seen me, Zoe, but many of the listeners haven't. You know, I come with a large piece of hardware, as I call it. And, uh, you know, for someone like me to turn up to be your new boss, you know, what's that going to do to people? It's confronting enough to have a new boss and, and to have to go through that process. You know, we've all dealt with it. But what if it's someone like me who you don't even believe is going to be more intelligent than you or has more experience or actually knows yeah. how to deal with a crisis situation on the team? What happens then? Awkwardness is kind of the outcome. It's what we get. And, and people just don't know what to do. And then when things are pointed out, they become either highly defensive or revoltingly apologetic. And, you know, so um, there, there's a big conversation that goes on around that on a regular basis. So often being um, disabled people operating in mainstream places is about navigating quite severe hostility or and or navigating people being incredibly awkward and being placed in a position of having to allay their fears would be a way of putting it yeah it can be really strange so we had a conversation before we hopped on the recording about and i generally ask this of my guests is there anything that's off limits and you said if you please share it with the listeners your well, response you know, we don't talk about our disabilities in in the disability community so what have you got <laughs> so and, and most of us particularly those <laughs> of us who are um those of us that you can see by looking um Complete strangers will come up to you in the supermarket, in the street, at a workplace, you might be the new person there and say, oh, what happened to you? Wow. Or, or what have you got? Or have you tried this treatment? Or what's this? And it's, so suddenly um, my body is public domain and, and I am obliged, apparently, I have an obligation to talk about quite personal details. And I think, wow, that's... I had an interesting analogy uh, with someone I met a couple of days ago who used a, um, an analogy that was around them being pregnant and said some complete stranger came up to them and put their hand on, on her belly and said, oh, how are you going as she rubbed her belly? And this woman, you know, had one of those moments of clarity where you have the right response prepared and reached back and rubbed the stranger's belly and said, oh, not too bad. How are you? <laughs> And the stranger, of course, was completely confronted by this woman moving into her personal space and doing this. And she said, well, you touch me first. It's, <laughs> this is, it's highly common. It's actually, we, we, we have entire Twitter days where it's almost a, a game we play um, amongst the disability community and a, an amusement for us all to, you know, share the, the worst examples we've had of, of these sorts of incidents. They happen all the time. So the wider world thinks it has a right to know about your disability and to know what your latest medical situation is, what treatments you, you're receiving, what difficulties you've encountered, um, etc. what are called in the Disability Discrimination Act intrusive questions. And yet I'm actually rude if I say, hang on, you don't have a right to ask me that. Oh, but I just wanted to know. I was just being friendly. It's like, you've just asked me completely personal questions. Yeah. If I turned up and said to you, 
oh, so when's your next period due? <laughs> or what was happening with your hemorrhoids that you mentioned? That sort of, <laughs> excuse me? There, there are, it, it's that really personal stuff, but when complete strangers are doing it, which it usually is, mm. it's, it's quite astonishing. So what this shows us is there's a lack of respect for personal space and for recognising disabled people as adult individuals. Somehow we're public domain and anybody can come at us with questions that are incredibly personal that you just wouldn't ask another person. In some ways, it's because your medical history is visible in some regard, you know, whereas if I walked around with a placard with all my medical history, it's essentially what it is, you know, here's my medical history on a placard and people have then asked questions about it. So people who don't have visible medical histories don't suffer that. But, you know, I think that's sort of... I think that's probably true. And, and you know, there is a an increasing area called appearance activism in the disability community. And uh, one of the people at the forefront of this is Carly Findlay, for anybody that wants to search for Carly. And, Carly's uh, C-A-R-L-Y? Findlay with a D. Um, uh-huh. And uh, Carly has a condition called ichthyosis. So she has very red skin, which flakes a lot. And it's all over her body. And Carly will find herself, she was recently, um, she talked publicly about being at a book signing at the Byron Bay Writers Festival, where she was um, talking about her latest book. And someone came up to her in the signing queue and actually offered her a treatment for her skin. To say, oh, I know how you could get that fixed. And Carly quite rightly said, well, I I didn't come here to get my skin fixed. I'm here to sign books. Thanks anyway. It's that kind of level of intrusion where you just, you know, for some reason, people feel they have a right to cross that line. Um, Well, that's amazing. It's as if, like, she's not trying to do anything about it either. Um, Is there an assumption? You know, this is what many of us actually talk about when we have these days of laughing about it. You know, the reality is, did you actually think I've never had any medical attention of any sort? Um, <laughs> but I need your completely ignorant medical advice. And by the way, um, don't you think that I'd be discussing this with my team of doctors rather than with some complete stranger in a supermarket? And I have said that to one or two people. I usually just look at people and say, do you really think you've got a right to ask me that question? I've only had a few people who actually then felt they did. Um, most people <laughs> suddenly realise they've crossed the line and back away. It's just a constant thing. So I think it gets to this whole element of people look at me and they don't see someone who has been a CEO, someone who has run teams, someone who is um, acknowledged as a leader in our community, somebody who has quite serious expertise in a number of um, specific areas, somebody who's sat on boards and chaired boards. People don't look at me and see that. They look at me and see cripple. And that's where we're still up to in the disability space. And that's what acts as a barrier to our recognition as leaders. And then, of course, if we are doing leadership, it's always assumed to be disability specific. It's only, we're only able to talk about disability, which, of course, I'm not helping at all by being here today talking about disability and running a disability leadership institute. But the truth is we have people in all sorts of academic spaces. We have people running IT departments in corporates. We have people doing all sorts of things across many, many fields, sitting on boards, being, um, you know, highly competent, increasing number of people in the media. And 
you know, so our expertise is extremely broad, our interests are very broad, and yeah, we can talk about just about anything like everyone else. Of course you can. And so let's talk about this paradox or this irony of the fact that like, why is it always through the disability lens? It should we are just leaders like everyone else. And here you have the Disability Leadership Institute with a whole program for people with disabilities. So tell me about that. Like, is the program that you've set up to encourage people and then you talk about generic leadership principles or is there a particular flavor that's disability specific in the leadership content? So I'm asking from an educator's point of view, like how do you structure yeah. a leadership program for people with disabilities? Well, we, um, we use vertical leadership as our underlying uh, leadership development space. Um, we recognise that horizontal leadership is where most people are at. Um, so that's your skill building, that's knowing how to run an organisation or how to draw up budgets or how to talk to the media or whatever. That's those things. Um, pretty much what you're going to learn in an MBA is your horizontal leadership. And then vertical leadership is about your development as a person. It's who you are. It's the type of leader that you become. We talked about people who are in it for themselves. That's very much an early to mid-level in the vertical leadership scale, those people. Um, people who are subject matter experts and they know they're right, very mid-level. And our big program, we have a major 12-month program that we, uh, we're just about to start our second intake of. Uh, very exciting. Um, and we work on vertical leadership and we work on really pushing people up that scale of vertical leadership into being people who are big picture thinkers, the people who make ripples, the people who transform the world around them, the people who um, really put thought into how to come at something from a different angle, those incredibly complex problem solvers, um, highly collaborative people. The further you go up the vertical leadership scale, the, the more collaborative and inclusive you are as a person. It's a very big development space. At the, at the top of your vertical leadership scale is what we call alchemists, and they're people like the Dalai Lama. So most of us aren't aspiring to get to that level because that's only going to be 1% of the, the world's population. Most of us settle a little bit under that. Um, in fact, the vast majority of people, about 80% of people are sitting right in that middle band, which happens you know, with any, any scale you end up with most people sitting in the middle. And so we put people through a process of working on their vertical leadership development while actually doing that through a disability lens. And this is where it's unusual in a world first program is most of the time when we start working on leadership, our disabilities become inconvenient. They're a bit awkward because we might operate differently as disabled people. But I think it's a white male kind of able white male paradigm that leadership's been built around, which, which says you've got to work hard. You have to be working long hours. You need to be able to travel a lot. You need to be, um, able to appoint it to positions. So that means working at least, you know, a 40 something hour week. You need to be able to command people. And that, that term command is often used. You need to be able to um, respond to difficult things and make harsh decisions, all of that sort of stuff. If we stop and think about it, you know, that's based on centuries of leaders are men, usually white, and uh, they operate in a certain way. What we're coming to understand about disability leaders is that we are highly inclusive people. We actually get that everyone's different. We're the, we're the experts in how to make sure that people are able to, you know, regardless of who you are, um, we'll make it work for you. 
we're actually more innovative in the workplace because we're really excellent problem solvers. A lot of that's around operating in hostile environments and managing to get by. And also understanding that there's a level of resilience in disabled people that disability leaders specifically, this is not generic to all disabled people, but I would have to say disabled women particularly are the most resilient people I've ever met. And I say that quite advisedly. Um, most of the, of the disabilities that disabled women have, you know, the vast majority are living in quite severe chronic pain. And yet they're still parents, they're still out there holding down jobs, they're out there changing the world, doing stuff within that circumstance. And these people develop the most astonishing reserves of resilience that are just, you know, if we could bottle it and sell it, we'd all be very wealthy indeed. That's just crude leadership stuff. There's also an extra element that we're starting to discover, which is really exciting, which is around how do we use our whole person as disability leaders instead of denying our disability, instead of pretending it's not there and trying to be the same able person that everyone else is. So to succeed in leadership, you don't need to be putting your disability to one side, which is what most of us have done mm. um, over time. Um, and many people with disabilities that I've come to know through the Institute have become extremely good at putting their disability to one side and, you know, getting on with it, which means sustaining your work becomes very challenging in that environment. You know, sooner or later you crash and burn. Yeah. You know, we, we throw around terms like self-care, you know, with reckless abandon in our society these days. But in some ways, disability leaders become you either have to master self-care or you're not going to succeed because you won't be able to sustain what you're doing. You know, living with disability is about maintenance. It's about knowing when you can and can't operate and being very aware of that. And it's also about understanding flexibility and how to create flexibility around you. So some of those things are really exciting and we're just at the front end of learning a lot more about them. We're learning a lot more about the ways that disability leaders come around to things and solve problems and devise solutions because we have different ways that we need to operate. So highly flexible, incredibly innovative people. And it's pretty exciting to be part of in that regard. Um, and we're all different. We all yeah. have such a different experience that um, all of those situations are going to be different for every single one of us. So in that last piece, which is about owning your disability and, and living with it and managing through it and being technical with it, seems to be a, a paradox at play where, does that, I mean, you've talked about people with disabilities need incredible courage and need to, and strength through expressing their vulnerability and, and sort of speaking about your disability and it's what needs to be adapted and how you live with it and work with it. Does that kind of like demystify it a little bit? And it, the paradox is you can talk about it, but people can't ask you about it? Uh, oh, that's absolutely where it sits. Um, yeah, okay. But that isn't what disability leadership is. It's not about wielding your disability like a sledgehammer. <laughs> it's not about wielding it and, and, you know, thumping people over the head with a sledgehammer with it. It's actually about not um, that process. And I use a hand gesture, you know, that kind of brushing aside thing yeah. that, that we do. And Every time I do that with any disabled person, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's about that I'm just not thinking about it today. I'm putting it to one side. Okay. I'm getting on with it. So 
the best way that most of us have come up with of, of managing is to simply not think about it. Don't want to know about my disability. Um, I'm going to plow on, you know, take the drugs, get on with things. And that isn't necessarily helpful. I mean, in other diversity areas, we talk about people turning up as their whole self. Yeah. And yet somehow for disabled people, that's not what we are encouraged to do. Our disabilities are confronting for other people. People don't actually, unless they want to get intrusive, people don't actually want to know about your disability. They really don't, actually. My grandmother once said to me, you know, people don't want to know you're sick. They really don't. <laughs> they, you know, I had no disability at the time. This was a word of advice that she gave me when I was about 11. You know, you don't talk about being sick. People, nobody wants to hear about it. And I thought, oh, right. You know, that's the sort of community we live in. And so people don't want your specific disability stuff going on. What they don't realise is happening as a result of that is that we're actually denying our disability. So, you know, I might turn up and be in the workplace. I am not going to ask for adjustment. I'm not going to say I need flexible conditions. I'm going to pretend that my disability doesn't exist. Mm. That is the experience that we know many, many people are having. It's why every single time I talk to whoever it is, a company or a government agency or an employer of any kind, they say, oh, we know we've got more people with disabilities. They're just not being open about it. I say, well, what do you think that says about your culture? What it tells me is that that person isn't feeling comfortable about being open about their disability. Mm. They're hiding it to the best extent that they can. Bearing in mind, most of us, you can't tell by looking. Most people can get away with hiding it until they crash and burn. Mm. And so the real trick there, and this is what we're really starting to focus on, is that people are not only being their whole self, and that's part of what our program focuses on, is actually recognising where your disability is an asset, mm. understanding how you use it. You know, if you're a deaf person, slowing a meeting down so that everybody you can see everybody talking and they don't all talk over the top of each other actually makes that meeting work better for everybody not just mm. for you suddenly everybody is not just respecting and listening to everybody else but everyone's getting a word in it makes a very big difference to understanding what's going on because we all absorb information differently and yet the deaf person has actually led the way and made that happen that's just one small example and we all have ways that we influence the world around us through our disability. And we all have ways that we use our disabilities to operate in environments. Those ways can actually be significant assets to our employers if we're not trying to conceal them. So I think this is incredibly important because it's about changing cultures. And I'm just trying to figure out in my head as you're talking, how do we make this work? I mean, you're, you're helping disability leaders say, own your, own your disability. It's an advantage. Talk about it. Be courageous to bring it to the table in spite of the cultures that want to tuck it away, hide it, and equate disability with disadvantage and problems. You're saying, no, let's revolutionize that. It's actually an asset for everyone, not just the person. So there's, a, there's the individual person with disabilities. And then there's people who don't have disabilities in leadership positions. How the hell do we make that bridge if we can't talk about disability with a disabled person until they, they raise it? Um, we don't spend all day talking about women in, in workplaces <laughs> where women are. 
we don't spend, you know, it's, it's, I mean, why, why, why do people feel the need to talk? I'm, I'm there to do a job. I'm there to be alongside you. I might be, you know, I might be the head of diversity in my organisation or let's put it another way. I might be running an IT team. Yeah. How, how the hell does talking about my disability make that work? We don't need to talk. Actually, we need to be talking about IT and we need to be talking about the company's purpose and how we fit into it. <laughs> you know. So I'm confused. Do we talk about it or we don't talk about it? Um, I, I think what we, we've arrived at a point with disability where people think we are public domain. Yeah. We work alongside multiple gender workplaces. We work alongside multiple intersectional workplaces with people from different cultural backgrounds, Indigenous people. We don't spend all day doing nothing but talking about that aspect of that person. Yeah, okay. And yet that's what disabled people do is they are expected all day, every day to be answering questions about their disability. And it is an all day, every day thing. All day, every day. All day, every day. It's not That's bloody exhausting. Can you imagine by the eighth time you get in the lift in your office building with complete strangers and several of them decide they have a right to start talking to you about your disability? At what point do you decide it's enough? Mm. But the answer is actually it shouldn't be happening at all. You're there to work. Mm. You're there because you're um, an IT specialist. Yeah. I think there's a balance in there somewhere. I don't think we need to talk about it all day, every day. Like you said, we don't talk about the gender thing all day, every day. We've moved on from that. <laughs> well, maybe we have, maybe we haven't. Well, yes and no. Um, you know, if we're in an executive team, you know, and uh, there might be three women and, and, and six men on the executive team, because it's about the balance we're probably still at with most places, um, they don't spend all day noticing that three of them are women and talking about women mm. they actually talk about being on the executive team and matters that are there you know if you're in a boardroom you're actually talking about matters of strategy and oversight with the organization you're not there talking about oh by the way you're a disabled person mm. and it isn't a topic of conversation it doesn't need to be um right. you know we we got over this with women decades ago you know it isn't a topic of conversation it doesn't need to be and me being all of me means that I'm actually open about my disability, I'm comfortable in my um, disability identity, it means I will actually feel comfortable saying, look, I'm not travelling well today, I'm going to go home early. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I need to be giving medical information to complete, you know, to peripheral team members. It means I might have a conversation with my immediate supervisor. Mm -hmm. As a CEO, I might say to my team, look, I'm not travelling well today, I'm going to knock off early. They don't need to be asking me about my disability and where that's at and how do I know I'm not travelling well and did I get a certificate and have I seen a doctor to say I'm not travelling well. They respect that I know who I am and that I'm able to do that. But they also go by my leadership example because disability leaders are more likely to hire other disabled people. And so the leadership example that I set is it's okay to say I'm not travelling well today. Mm. It's okay to say I've got an appointment I'm going off to. It's okay to say oh, it's time for my new wheelchair to arrive. I won't be in it until lunchtime on that day. It's okay to actually be open about that stuff. Mm. That's not talking about your disability. It's about your disability as an aspect of your existence. And it's a very different thing to being subjected to intrusive yeah. questions and the expectation that you should be sharing your medical history with people. It's a very different situation entirely. So I think we need to just get a bit real about that. It also creates a comfort zone. Yeah. You know, if I'm actually comfortable saying something about where my disability's at, 
or where I'm at as a person and my disability is part of me as a person. Mm. So, you know, today I'm not traveling well. I overdid it this week. I'm a bit tired. That actually makes it more comfortable to have disabled people around. I've got friends, for example, um, autistic friends or friends who have psychosocial disabilities like schizophrenia who will in the workplace be more open about the fact that I'm just not absorbing that information because I'm, you know, I need you to give it to me differently instead of pretending they're understanding and not doing as good a job as a result, which is what would have happened in the past. So, you know, we're, we're getting better at recognising that we operate differently. Everybody operates differently. Mm. We've all got something. And being able to actually not so much share that openly and be constantly in a share space, you know, that's a bit exhausting. Nobody wants to sit around somebody who's constantly going on about themselves. I mean, how tiring. <laughs> that ability to say, oh, okay, well, that's not how I best absorb information. I, I just need to do this differently. What's a way of doing that? That's where we start to recognise that everyone's different and we accept that difference. And we accept the richness that that difference provides. And we also start to use it better. Diversity is fundamentally about difference. And yet we put an incredible amount of energy into expecting everyone to turn into the same upright white person, usually men, that was there first. How is that diverse and how is that using everybody? It isn't. If we're all blocking ourselves, then it's not using diversity. I'm, I'm quite fascinated by this aspect of diversity. We, we throw the word around, but we're not using diversity. We're woeful at actually using it and making it work for us. Mm. We get so hung on, on everybody being the same and a certain paradigm is how we all are and this is the acceptable way to be that we forget that actually we don't have to all be like that. And it's better if we're not. I think that's a thank you for sharing that picture of what we ought to be doing and what is possible in the workplaces when we are truly inclusive and celebrate difference and actually use difference in a way that's productive for all. I think that makes a lot more sense. And it's an important distinction that I'm glad I now know and I'm glad the listeners now have as well. Do you anticipate, and I'm wondering about this because, um, in women's only forums, I anticipate or look forward to the day where we don't need women's only forums. Is that just human forums? Yeah. Do you have the same aspirations in the disability space where we don't need a special space for disability or not? You bet. Absolutely. Um, you know, when we're there, when we're 15% of global leadership, because we're 15% of the world's population, or really it's more like 20, but you know, the stats are bad in some countries. When we're there, when we're in those spaces, when the culture shifts because we're in the room, part of the decision-making groups, part of the respected leadership, because that's how we shift culture, we know that from the top, then we won't be needing all of this specialist attention. You know, we're not there across any of the diversity groups yet. We're still working on the women thing. Yeah. So it's going to be a little while before we get to this, uh, folks. So, you know, no panic. We will get there eventually. Um, but there won't be a need. You know, when we start to accept that everybody is simply who they are, and we aren't hung up on difference, but rather embrace difference. Mm. When we achieve that point as a community, as a global society, um, yeah. I don't think I'll see it, unfortunately. I think it's probably a, a little way ahead, a good century or more down the track, possibly further. You know, at the moment, our society is, has 
done a, a, a regression back towards creating division and being more focused on division and superiority of certain groups. So we, we just have to kind of keep going and know that we'll get there eventually, I suppose. I, I kind of see it slightly differently. Like I agree there's an emergence of what feels like a backwards trend in a developmental space. I actually think that could be this slingshot being pulled backwards and it may. pulling us forward. And you see that in a lot of the rising conversations about what do we really want as a society and so some days i feel doom and gloom about it and some days i feel way more optimistic i I think so and fundamentally i'm a you know i am an optimist i guess because um i i've spent my life affecting change and you don't do that if you don't think you're going to get anywhere with it i suppose so yeah um, you know i i don't i don't spend a great deal of time anguishing about how awful things are but i do recognize that something needs to shift you know, that's where the leadership stuff comes in is the people who recognise where things could be shifted, where change can be made and, you know, work to develop that change and to pull together collaborators and to to articulate what the vision might be. Some of those things go there and we'll get there. We certainly will get there. And in the short period of the time that the Institute's been around, we've actually got language on the map now that disability leadership is a thing. It certainly wasn't there before. That language was simply absent. We've got the vast majority of Australia's major companies and many of our public sectors now recognising that disabled people can be leaders and that something must be done about that. Whereas previously, it didn't even feature in their diversity programs. Mm. So, you know, in a very short period of time, we've affected some ripples those ripples will keep doing their thing. Well, I'm hoping that this podcast interview is part of that so that we can get these fundamentals of basic conversation out on the table and move on from that so we can actually talk about the big challenges that we need to solve as a society. And having more voices and more perspectives at the table is, is critical to that. Christina, is. Yeah. thank you so much for your generous time today, especially after a long and fulsome week I know that you've had. I hope the rest of your Friday goes really well. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Zoe. It's been a real pleasure.